Good afternoon, welcome to Navarra FM here on London's number one radio station. You know what I'm talking about, it's Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Aaron Bastani at Aaron Bastani on Twitter. Today I'm joined by Ellie Mailhagen. Hi Ellie. Hey, nice to be here. Great to have you. You've got a lot of hats you're wearing these days, so it's Al Beeb. Uh, yeah. Class, the think tank. No, no, I left. You left? I left, yeah. Now and then it's just freelancing. And freelancing. Yeah, yeah, writing for whoever will pay me. And, and the work you do at Arbib, can you just quickly tell listeners what that's all about? Um, yeah, it's a, I edit, it's a section for open, the website Open Democracy and it's a section on um, the future of the BBC. And I'm actually only working until the end of this year on that, but I basically just take pieces about the sort of future of British media and the BBC and what its role is in British society. So, yeah. Very personal because we're going to be talking about the media coverage of, of course, nothing else, the Autumn Statement. But before we do that, we also got Michael Walker in the house. Hello, Michael. Lovely to be here. From The Fix. From the fix, where is it? Well, the fix. <laughs> hey, we got a se- we got a second. We got yeah, a second we have, season. We, have, we, have. we got a second season on the way. It's got second album, right? Yeah. <laughs> we asked Michael was going to originally do this show, and then he couldn't do it because obviously Michael's a very busy guy, very successful. Then I called up James Medway. I said, James, Michael Walker, big deal. He can't do it. Can you fill in? And then Medway was going to do it. Then James Medway couldn't do it. But then we could get you back. You couldn't in. fill those shoes, man. So it was always, it was all you know, it was meant to be, right? It was meant to be. We were meant to have, as advertised, James Medway, uh, economic consultant to John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor. Of course, would have been very good to have him on. We're discussing the autumn statement, the state of Britain's economy and what it means both economically and politically. We can't. Hopefully, James will come on in the future. He did once come on a show where he was invited. He made the last nine minutes. So uh, he's actually trumped that. Anyway, anyway. Doesn't matter. We've got a lot to talk about. We've got two great guests, so I, I can't wait to get our, our teeth into it. I was going to ask this question to James M, James, my boy James Medway, but I'll ask you, Ellie, and I don't want us to cover too much of the economics because obviously the guy who's the economist isn't here, but what are the big takeaways from yesterday's autumn statement? This was Philip Hammond's first big set piece as Shadow Chancellor. It was the first big set piece after Brexit, of course. The last budget came in the spring, so it was before June. What were the big takeaways? What did we learn? Any surprises? Well, I thought I was kind of annoyed by the way that the coverage focused a lot on the letting agents fees, because obviously, you know, I'm I'm a private renter in London. Probably you two are as well. I'm probably most of the listeners to this. Um, And, you know, it is a problem letting agents in London, like the whole the whole thing in London. And, you know, in remember when I lived elsewhere as well, like letting agents were just, am I allowed to swear on this show? Ofcom won't like it. Go on. They were just. Well, I won't swear, but you know, these weren't good. It wasn't good. And, um, but like, there is a wider issue to be talked about in this country, you know, when it comes to housing. I think that like letting agents fees don't really, they don't really that cover anything. You know, it's, it's good that they're being scrapped, but it doesn't really fill the hole. And I think also it distracted from what was the most interesting element of the autumn statement for me, which is the scrapping of the surplus rule. Um, partly because George Osborne introduced that as a way of um, essentially tricking the Labour government into, you know, either supporting something that would um, kind of tie them to something that they didn't want to do, or they would have to uh, say that they were going to borrow more and then be accused of being profligate. So it was quite a big thing when it happened, the surplus at the time. And then obviously John McDonnell initially supported it and then realised that was a bad idea and then changed his mind. Um <laughs> So the fact that they scrapped it is really interesting. And I think the reason that they've done that and the reason as well that the autumn statement was overall quite gloomy 
is because I think that if they if they were honest with the public, they would admit that they know that there's going to be another recession off the back of Brexit, and they can't afford to run a surplus now. And I think that for me, um, the big takeaway from the autumn statement is there's going to be a recession and they're laying the groundwork for it. And they know that Brexit is going to cost the economy a lot of money and they don't want to say it, but that's what they were trying to lay the groundwork for. Michael, big takeaway for you? Uh, I think in a way there wasn't, there wasn't a big takeaway. And that was, in a way, well, disappointing is the wrong word, but if you look at Theresa May's conference speech, you've got a dramatic new vision for the UK economy. Um, you, I, I watched it and I was like, wow, she just killed neoliberalism. Uh, and you sort of thought her vision for the economy is going to be a blue labour, well, not blue labour, but, you know, investment, reinvestment in the economy, winning over sort of like <clears throat> um, re reframing the economy, basically because a globalised model was no longer possible because of Brexit. So we're going to have to have a new model, which is based on investment, etc., etc. Um but there was not much in it. You know, it was a bit to say like the Labour was vote Labour, win a microwave. It was a bit like keep the Tories, get a microwave. I mean, there was a, you can, the fuel, du, du, the fuel duty benefit is been extended for a year, 23 billion of investment, not very much. Yeah. Corbyn was offering 500 billion. 350 billion, I think. 350 for billion. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, not much to, there wasn't much I in mean, it. I mean, it's tough for Hammond, isn't it? Because we've had Brexit. It's changed the rules of the game, but at the same time, we haven't had Brexit, we haven't had Article 50, uh, and we still haven't negotiated anything. And that was kind of reflecting the OBR's worst and best case scenarios for growth, right? Worst case scenario for growth, and this is the OBR, and they get a lot of stuff wrong, but it's not like the Navara estimate, the Navara forecast, very legitimate forecast. Their worst case forecast was recession 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021. Worst case, best case was like 4% growth each year. Now, both of those are obviously quite unlikely, okay? Obviously. Uh, but I thought that was reflected really in, in what Hammond was saying, but I think Ellie's absolutely right. We're going to go back into recession sometime before 2020. The question is, how big is it and how bad is it? Um, a few points. So... I think building on the understanding that, yeah, Hammond knows there's going to be a recession. Why is there going to be a recession? Yes, Brexit's one part, and this is something I want to talk about. James isn't here really to talk about it, so I can talk about it, I guess, from the economics perspective, is that all the growth we've seen, which, by the way, per capita, GDP per capita hasn't really gone up that much, but GDP's done okay, right, has come from new people being employed, new people being pushed into the labour market. We've got the highest rates of labour participation for a very long time. But because productivity's been stagnant, right, that's fine. You can keep on pushing people into work and that will help GDP, but they can't do that anymore, right? Because unemployment's really low. So now we have to really boost productivity to get GDP up. What's productivity? It's the amount of output per hour works per worker. That has to be pushed up. I think that's recognised by Hammond. So what I expected, and okay, yeah, it's early doors, they can't do too much, was, I guess, Ellie, responding to your point, what I expected was something a bit more decisive around infrastructure and productivity. Mm -hmm. And it was 23 billion as small fry, right? It's peanuts compared to what John McDonald's saying, 350 billion. And I guess after May's speech, uh, her conference speech in the autumn, I thought, yeah, there could be something really big on a few sort of, you know, ready to go infrastructure projects, 5G. I mean, there's a bit of that, but it was kind of tame. And I was kind of underwhelmed. How did you how did you feel about that, Ellie? Was it underwhelming? There was not really red meat there for Tory voters. It was kind of a bit vanilla, kind of boring. Yeah, I thought um, it was interesting because there's been a lot of talk, um, also by me, about the death of sort of neoliberalism. And I think what was quite interesting about 
uh, the autumn statement is that you couldn't really see that in what they announced. Like it wasn't it wasn't as though they were like, right, neoliberalism is gone. Let's bring in this new this new system, this new order. Actually, it kind of felt like they were sort of still trying to resuscitate this corpse. And and I think that was that was quite interesting and quite quite striking to me. And I think um, yeah, they're they're still they're still obviously the kind of British establishment, if you like, is still very wedded to that system and is finding it very hard to sort of disentangle itself. I mean, I think a really important question to ask, therefore, is first of all, what will be the consequences of this, dragging out this system that is out of favour with the public and is not working? What will be the consequences for the public? And also, how should the left respond to that? I think that's another really important question. Um, one of the other interesting things about the autumn statement was the fact that real wage growth is is going to be virtually non-existent, I think, until about 2020. And that that's like the worst it's been for 70 years. And it's it's a really bad situation. Obviously, that's going to translate into public anger. And there's still going to exist this disparity between what politicians are saying about people's lives and what lived experience of life is for a lot of people in this country. And so I think what are the consequences of that going to be is one question. And I think at the moment what we're seeing is, uh, you know, a, a drift, um, people drifting from a certain type of establishment, by which I guess I mean the mainstream parties, towards another type of establishment, which is parties that masquerade as, uh, you know, parties of the people like UKIP, but are actually just an, another form of the establishment. So that could get worse. How can the left respond to that? You know, what what can we do? I think we need to come up with a plan about a story that we can tell to people about, you know, their lives. Why is this happening to them? Why are things not getting better? What are the solutions? I think that's what the left needs to be working on at the moment. Yeah, no, I agree. I think in terms of the left is struggling now, I think, to reframe what its argument is against the Tories before it was that they were strictly wedded to austerity and they were open about it. They admitted it. They said austerity was necessary. And we said, no, it's not. Now, they're also saying austerity isn't necessary, but it's unclear what they're actually going to do. So, and I think Labour's a bit confused, probably between the different wings of the party. If there was another, if there was another Labour opposition at the moment, they'd be hammering the Tories on competence. You've got uh, a government whose leader offered a referendum for just, just to please his backbenchers. And now we've got Brexit, which is putting in danger our whole economy and... They seem all over the place. So if, if you had a kind of Chakramuna type opposition, they could go really hard on the Tory party is irresponsible, spend ages trying to associate Theresa May with the irresponsibility of David Cameron before her and sort of say the Tories are a mess. You can only actually trust the economy. And would that do pretty Labour. well? Would that reflect pretty well in the polls, do you think? Uh, well, it's difficult to know because it's 2016. So <laughs> I think in any other year, you'd kind of have confidence that a party that took Britain out of Europe by accident would, would struggle against a sort of competent kind of bureaucratic type, we're the good managers type party. Um, given it's 2016, I don't know what a Chakra Moon or opposition would be, would be playing with. I don't know where that would be in the polls. The competence angle is obviously, I mean, McDonald's trying to use it, but it's harder for that to stick when it's coming from the current opposition, which has in, over the last year, through a number of faults of a number of people, been all over the place. No one really thinks Labour are the competent ones in the House of Commons because the, the leader can't take the back benches with him. And they seem a bit all over the place on policy, partly because the shadow cabinet has historically not really agreed on what is their line. So I think the Labour Party are going to have to go for a different line, which is going to be to say, 
the Tory party, they're all talk. So they are talking about an end to austerity. That's what we agree with. But there's structural reasons why they can't deliver that. Only a radical government can deliver that because we're not wedded to the same interests as the Tory party. So if we want a radical shift in the economy, that's going to mean a challenge to an economy based on rent, based on asset bubbles, based on banking. And you look at the Tories, who they are, how many of them are landlords, how many of them are, were bankers. And you can say that only a radical Labour government powered by people at the grassroots can have a break with neoliberalism. Otherwise, you're going to get fudges, which is, to be honest, what this autumn statement looks like. Responding to your point about real wage growth, Ali, I mean, even was it the Resolution Foundation mm-hmm. were on record as saying that the 2010s will be the worst decade for wage growth on these OBR numbers since the 1900s. But that only tells you half a story because all of their starting points are 2010, which is legitimate. That's when the Tories came to power. But if we then roll it back a little bit to 2007 when the crisis starts, between 2007 and today, real wages declined by 10.4%. In the last year or two, that hasn't happened, right? Because inflation's been so low that even though wage increases have been marginal, they've been above inflation. The problem with Brexit is that inflation's going to go back up, even if it's just slight, and it'll creep again above any wage growth, if we have that now between now and 2020, it's possible that by the end of this decade, so 13 years after the crisis, from 2007 to 2020, real wages will have declined by 15%. And that's not a worst case scenario. That's not a middle scenario either. It's a bad scenario. But it's kind of like if we look at what's happened in the last, you know, uh, nine years, and if it carries on till 2020, which the OBR is saying is pretty possible, then that's what we're looking at. 15% real fall in wages. And Ellie, I agree with you. That has a political overhead. That will lead to the rise of the far right. That, that just will. That may not have electoral manifestations. That's historically what's been so good about, from an establishment point of view, our parliamentary system. But it really could do. And my concern is that the left, Labour, is really content with being right. We were right about the failure of austerity. We were right about wages are going to go down. There will be a political overhead to all of this, and we now have to act um, decisively. And it offers opportunities, but it offers opportunities for both sides. So UKIP in the last general election got 4 million votes. I can perfectly foresee, again, it's not likely... Right. But given 2016, perfectly possible. I can foresee another general election. Let's say not. I don't think it'll be next year, but I think the soonest one will be 2017, which by 2018, which, by the way, I still think will be a disaster for Labour. I don't think they'd get crushed, but I don't think it'd be great either. And I think there'd be a lot to play for, but I don't think they'd do great. Um, you can imagine you keep doing really well. And my worst case scenario isn't the Tories getting a landslide, by the way. My worst case scenario is the Tories getting a slight majority and you keep getting six, seven, eight million votes or something absolutely bananas. And I think that if wages continue to do what they're doing, that's actually not that implausible. And we do have to have a response. And I think the left has to have a response. And it can't just be this rational response. It has to be an emotional response. And at the moment, I'm not seeing that with Labour. You know, I'm not seeing that with Labour. I'm not seeing that with John McDonnell. I'm not seeing that with Corbyn. And... I'll finish with this. We know that the right-wing print media is abominable. Okay, we know that. I mean, look at the stuff coming out with the Daily Mail there around Thomas Mayer. Um, you know, he was left behind by globalisation. They were for the bedroom tax, and now they're saying, oh, his council house is why he did it. Maybe it's because Mayer's mum ran off with a black guy. I mean, just banana stuff. Really, banana stuff. Apologies, and by the way, for listeners who don't know, this is the, the person who killed, who assassinated, a political assassination of Joe Cox. Right-wing, um, a person who was really gravitated towards right-wing Nazi uh, ideology. Um, 
but yeah, so there's all this. The right wing premier is terrible. And then I'm watching the BBC last night. I'm watching BBC Question Time. And then what was really disturbing this week, and you had Liz Kendall, Andrew Neil, Dan Hodges, and Michael Portillo. And you think if this is the BBC and that 70% of news and radio broadcast, and you can talk about this a lot, I guess, because this is your thing with our Beeb, and we're seeing a 15% decline in real pay. These people, and I'm not being discourteous, everybody says everybody's in a bubble, everybody's in a bubble, I get it, but these people really have no clue about what a 15% decline in real wages means for the country. Ellie, what are your thoughts about that? How does this, how does this align with media, particularly broadcast, and are people in the BBC, in and around broadcast media, dismissive, ignorant of just how bad the situation is? I definitely think that there's a problem in all media that, that I've worked in or been a part of, of the, the fact that... Um, Everybody comes from very similar class backgrounds. I think that, you know, I last year set up um, a, an awards ceremony specifically for women in journalism because um, we felt that women were being underrepresented. But I think the real problem in journalism, actually, ideally, I would have liked to have done a kind of working class people awards <laughs> or just at least not very privileged because I think that is actually the main problem in journalism is that everybody comes from a, a very small selection of people they've all been to the same schools they've all been to the same universities and many of them have been to the same universities and schools as people in parliament like as politicians and yes i do think that creates a bubble um and i also think one thing that we haven't talked about but when you were um talking about like the people on question time i think and i'm going to get on my like hobby horse now that i've been on since trump got elected well, I've been on for years, but I've only been really vocal about it since Trump got elected, is um, I think one of the issues as well is that I feel like the liberal left has obstruct, obstructed like a, a, what I would call like a, a genuine left response. That when you look at, you know, you look in the kind of public sphere and you look at public discourse, for like 20, 30 years now, the left has been represented by the liberal left, like the centre left or the centre. You know, so people like Tony Blair are often at the top of like most influential lefty lists and whatever. And like Aaron Bastani is also on those are lists. You, you were there, no? No, I never you're get kidding. on those you're lists. I'm irrelevant. No, 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 you are not. in the real world, maybe not in Indale land, but. <laughs> um, but yeah, and like, so I think like that's one of the problems is that there just isn't space. I mean, obviously now we have like, um, Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party and that's why it's so frustrating that he's that the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn has not managed to come up yet with a kind of vision of what it stands for because until he came along and this is why I and so many people I think voted for him there wasn't space in public discourse for the left even though the, as you say the left had been right about so many key political issues over the last 20 years like the Iraq war the financial crisis you know uh, privatization of public services all of these things the left called them right and yet there's been no representation of the left in the last 30 years and i think that is just as big as a problem as the kind of and also related to the fact that all of these people are coming from the same schools and universities is that actually there's a big swathe of the population that just isn't being represented their political views aren't being represented they deserve a space in public life they're right about a lot of things and also i believe very strongly that um this rise of kind of right-wing authoritarianism we're seeing now in in america and in western europe I think only um, a radical left vision can defeat that. It can't be defeated by managerialism, as as is as is being played out in front of us. It can't be defeated by kind of technocratic politics. It can't be defeated by accepting austerity. You know, there needs to be a radical solution to this. There needs to be a radical left-wing populist solution. And at the moment, that isn't getting through. And I think, and that's that's really where we're stuck. Yeah, I was going to respond to two of 
um, your points, one about the left being happy to be right, and and one about the are we going to see the development of the far right now that wages are falling? I think, to be honest, we can see with the shadow cabinet that at the moment they're not particularly wedded to be being right. I think they just don't know who they're trying to please. So Clive Lewis is saying, oh, migration, that does depress wages. I don't know if he really believes it, but the problem with the Labour Party is that they don't know what pitch they're making and who they're making it to. Why did, why did Clive Lewis say that, do you think? Uh, it seemed odd for me, given his constituency within the party, the mm-hmm. people that will be behind him if he ever wishes to run for the leadership or whatever, seemed odd. I think it was a mistake. I think it's lost him a lot of credibility of who would have been his constituency in the party. Yeah. And Labour's line on migration at the moment isn't going to win over everyone, anyone. Yeah. They've, they've got a real problem where Brexiters think they're for Remain and Remainers think they're for Brexit. And they haven't taken a strong line on anything. I mean, partly their line just isn't particularly plausible. He says, if we introduce workers' rights, that will naturally reduce immigration, which doesn't seem particularly plausible to me. I mean, there's only, their line should be, which I think is what is true. The only way you lower migration is you pull up the drawbridge or you have a recession. So, so let's be honest in this debate. One, that all these studies show that migration doesn't actually depress wages. This is, and you can combine that to an attack to, to the, the media, as you've been talking about, or to sort of the Tory party's willingness to, to incite um, hatred to get away with whatever they're doing. Um, but to say, this is where they could really take on the competence line. They say, there isn't, you've got two options. One is that you turn away from the world, you pull up the drawbridge, and you have to have a completely different economy, and you're probably going to be poorer. Or two, you keep your country open to the world, and that means we're going to accept freedom of movement. The Tories are trying to have both, and they can't. It's going to crumble, which it will. And then at least you've got a position. At the moment, they don't have a position. So I'd have thought Clive actually could have gone for the stronger defence of freedom of movement there. I think there is political space for that. Around migration, so feeding back into the OBR numbers yesterday, the OBR forecasts aren't based on immigration being reduced to tens of thousands. Even the the recessionary forecasts, uh, they are based on, yes, net immigration going down, maybe being reduced by 50%, but tens of thousands mean, mean it means we go into recession for the next three, four years realistically. Um, and that's, of course, what rhetorically Theresa May has to live up to. I mean, I think, I think it's impossible personally, mm. um, just because of a, of, a, of a cleavage within the Tory party, both their donor base and their supporter base, which wants both free markets, but also wants an end to mass immigration. Uh, quickly, um, I mean, you can, foresee, I was watching Bernie Sanders around this uh, pipeline going through North Dakota. You know, and he's giving a solidarity to Native Americans, and I just thought, just phenomenal. That video is amazing. Right, it's an amazing. Yeah, I tweeted. I love it Bernie. <laughs> and you just think, and you just think, this guy is just—he's uh, a seventy-four-year-old. His age is, is immaterial, I know, but he's got the energy and the insight to understand the zeitgeist, which, as you get older, is more difficult, right? And he is capturing something so well, and all it would take is a really plausible, compelling left politician. They don't need to be telegenic. They don't need to be Barack Obama just to say, look, immigrants create jobs. They can be entrepreneurs. They can be friends. They can be neighbours. And it, it would be a really simple pitch. I mean, mm. I've not actually heard anybody say, look, immigrants can start businesses that employ people. Right? It's, there's no, and the whole thing about what Trump does sensationally well is he pitches to the American electorate two things. He says international trade is zero sum. He says, China now has a middle class because we've lost our middle class, which is obviously not how it works. 
Okay, I mean, there's something of an argument there around free trade and NAFTA, but that's not how it works, right? And then he says the same thing around, so that's like a zero something, and then there's a similar thing around immigration. So you have lost a certain quality of life in America because these people are here now, and you can't have that quality of life with these people being here. That's incorrect, right? He also does that latter thing in terms of cultivating a certain xenophobia to immigrants. He primes the electorate through starting with Muslims. He primes them. And this is a term that they're using, something called NLP, priming. But this is a, the point is it starts with a place which is actually quite tenuous, and you don't think that could be generalized to a mass population. That's exactly what he does. And these are, these are perfectly, you know, uh, basic, these are very basic techniques. And I just feel like in Lewis's speech, I love Clive Lewis. I've never said a bad word about mm. Clive Lewis until the speech. In Clive Lewis, there was the sense there of a zero-sum game between British workers and immigrants. And there is a sense within McDonnell and Corbyn stuff of a zero-sum game in global trade. And if they go down that route, believe me, and look, I'm mm. very open to them trying things, right? And I'm very supportive of them politically. Uh, and I, I really, I don't like to be critical, but if they go down that route, look, it really is only going to serve UKIP. And I'm not one of these people that jumps in the bang, bandwagon and says, oh, look, mm. they're trying to triangulate, go right to appease people that can't be appeased. I really think this is a dead end, Ellie. Um, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think um, what will happen uh, over the next sort of 10 years or so when uh, there is a Brexit recession, when uh, real wages stagnate, is that um, the government, which will probably be a Tory government, will try to deflect its own policy failures onto groups that they can easily other. You know, we've already seen that happening, and I think it will get worse. And and I totally agree with you that, um, in fact, it was Brendan Cox, who um, the uh, husband of Joe Cox, who said that um, used Sarkozy as an example and said that actually you know, uh, center, centrist parties try to um, claw back voters by um, demonizing immigrants and all it does is reinforce the frames of the far right. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, I think the left doesn't really have any choice at this point um, other than to defend immigration. I think we have to. It's going to be really hard. I mean, the sentiment out there is is angry and and very strongly felt. But we've got no choice but to defend this. I'm really glad you said that, Ali. We yeah. know that, like the the alternative is to throw people under a bus, is to take us down a road where a woman, you know, who fought for the rights of refugees in Parliament is brutally killed on the street. That's already happened. You know, where a Muslim woman um, loses her baby because she's attacked in the street. These things are happening in our in our society, in our country, in our communities already. You know. What we're seeing now has material consequences in people's lives. And if we don't stand for anything, we, we should stand for ending oppression wherever it, we find it as a left. We should stand for real people's lives, you know, real people having good lives, free from oppression. We should stand for equality. Those are the principles that we live by as leftists. And if we can't try to stem this tide now, what are we good for? I don't think we have any choice but to defend this. It's politically going to be difficult. You know, yeah, we'll probably, Labour will probably go down in the polls. But this is a question, an existential question for me of what is the left and what does it stand for? And now is the time to answer that question by defending immigrants, you know, by defending these groups that are marginalised. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I also, I also think that it doesn't even... Because when this kind of thing comes up on the left, there's generally the argument of this is the morally correct thing to do, this is the necessary compromise and it's the only way we can stop the Tory party 
And if they win, it will be even worse. In this situation, I think it's just a flop in both respects. Um, one, to not hold the line in this moment when politics is moving to the right on... And to say something that's actually false. I mean, yeah. with Clive Lewis framing it like a zero-sum game, it's, it's not true in any way. Like, I, I don't really know what he's playing at. Also, electorally, I think... Labour are sort of grasping around for some sort of discursive answer that's going to win 51% of the population over. And in the process, they might go down to 10. I mean, they won't go down to 10, you but sound, you know what I mean? You sound like Owen Smith. No, they, they, they were, Realistically, they're never going to get below no, they're 25. Not, they're not going to go down to 25, but I mean, you, I mean, need, you need to, you need to pitch to one constituency solidly, right? Because they've they've, they're going to start alienating sort of metropolitan people who are for a globalised world and migration and stuff because they sound so soft on it. When you've got the Tories and UKIP as opponents, no one's going to believe you're the party to vote for if you're against migration. So they're finding themselves just in this sort of half-assed, in-betweeny space. I think they'd be electorally and also morally, they'd be much better doing actually what Paul Mason says, which is surprising because he's often put as someone who's prone to compromise on things like migration. But he says there's these two different constituencies in Britain. One is the one that wants Britain to be an open economy, global, and one that wants it to be more closed. Um, Labour needs to recognise that its core, the core it, it can't afford to lose, is the, the metropolitan uh, groups that want to have a globalised world. And then that, that gives you a solid 30%, which you're not going to go below. And then you focus all your sort of like arguments to to people who aren't yet convinced about that. I mean, he says flood them with money, <laughs> flood the flood the north and non-metropolitan areas with money, to to sort of demonstrate that we can have a globalized economy, migration without that being uh, co without that coexisting with neoliberal neoliberal decline. That's a good line. I mean, Paul, I was at a talk and he sort of compared it to a spaceship, and he was saying, you know, you'd be where are the Mirth or Tidville or whatever, and it's like this spaceship of infrastructure will just land and it'll just create all these jobs and a new university, new hospital. And, you know, infrastructure at the moment, again, under neoliberalism, is always about linking these places up to already pre-existingly sort of affluent areas, right? So yeah, like let's... just to Right. Yeah. Let's build roads and rail between somewhere like Newport and Cardiff rather than say, hey, let's do something for Newport or let's do something for the poorer parts of Cardiff, um, which I think is correct. So we really need to just completely reconsider what even infrastructure means. Mm. There's this whole thing about infrastructure spending. I see, OK, so if we get in, what does it mean? And politically, how does it operate as uh, a tool for building consent around things that otherwise parts of the electorate, for instance, around migration, may not be that happy around? And I think that would... That's perfectly plausible. That's perfectly plausible. Uh, and I, the Clive Lewis thing, I really, really, really don't understand. I really just don't understand the whole thing with migration with them generally. To, to be fair... Because um, Sorry, can I just say, yep. because I understand that there is no consent for free, freedom of movement in Britain. There was never a, a vote. I get that. There is no consent, and we've got to build that consent, and I agree with Ellie. We're going to have to that politically and be very slow. Um, but that doesn't mean you then start repeating incorrect shibboleths around migrants... Uh, leading to declining real pay. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's difficult. I admit, when I first read that, because there was that initial Paul Mason article, I think post-Brexit, where he says, where he sort of makes uh, what claims to be a kind of anti-racist argument for temporary migration controls. Because he says, we have temporary migration controls because that will allow us to rebuild democratic consent for migration, at which point we can bring them down again. 
but I think that's probably not how politics works. It's also not, it's also not how discourse works. Like yeah. if we brought in like temporary migration controls, that would be immediately seized upon by the right as some kind of victory, and then that would make making the case for migration at a later date even harder. I yeah, think. no, I I totally agree. I think it doesn't work, and I think to be fair to him, it sounds like he's also changed his mind on that one. Uh, but but Clive, I think probably is going down that. I think that's probably what Clive's thinking. I mean. He's a decent guy. I mean, I wouldn't want to knock out Clive. I think in many ways, we on the Labour left need Clive. <laughs> so, um, so let's help the guy out, but, um, but be critical when it's necessary. Okay. Well, you're listening to Navarra FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. I have the great pleasure of being joined by Ellie Malhagen and Michael Walker from Arbeeb and The Fix, respectively. We're talking the autumn statement and I guess the political aftermath. We've not touched on the economics of yesterday or Wednesday's events as much as we would have liked to because of course uh, James Medway was meant to be joining us he couldn't make it uh, got a text message no WhatsApp message about 11 o'clock last night coming out of the pub anyway so how come you didn't text me till half 11 today <laughs> uh, you know what I just thought Michael Walker such a big deal has so much on his plate no I mean James can buy Aaron a drink to apologise and then you can buy Michael a yeah, drink to apologise that's right that's right. No, but I, I get, I get. See, it's like the economy; the pound is turning. Hey, it's a stimulus, right? It's a stimulus yeah, package. It's a stimulus. Uh, James, James is very busy, so I, 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 uh, I'm perfectly understanding of that. But yeah, let's talk about the political overhead. We've talked about what it means to the far right, declining wages, problems for the left. Okay, so how do we respond? So we've got just over twenty minutes left. How does the left respond to the roof falling in? Basically, I mean, that's what the autumn statement tacitly conceded, I think, as you mentioned about 15, 20 minutes ago, Ali. So how does the left respond now? What do we do, both within and beyond Parliament? I mean, I was just actually just having the same conversation last night um, about the sort of, you know, because I think it's, I've been sort of talking a lot about the failures of liberalism and the failures of the left and the centre-left um, to respond to the challenges thrown up by the fan financial crisis and all the things that have happened since. But I think it's also, it's fair, we have to be fair and say that the left has also failed um, over the last um, however many years since 2008 and, and that's like uh, painful for me to admit because you know I was such a huge part of activism on the left for such a long time trying to kind of turn turn the tide um, but I think it's true and I, and I think one of the reasons for that is that we've been spent the last um, sort of six, eight years fighting these kind of enemies and you know one of which we call neoliberalism the other of which we've called austerity and I think that has made it hard for us to actually talk about what we stand for, what do we want to build, what are we fighting for. Um, I don't think it's going to cut it anymore, fighting against uh, problems all the time. I think we actually need to have a conversation as a movement, which, which has historically always been very difficult for us because we don't want to talk about necessarily what we stand for because we, we believe in you know, sort of democracies and, and that, that seems quite authoritarian. I, I've always found that very difficult in activist movements to talk about what, we, what do we actually stand for because you alienate people and everything has to be done by consensus. Um, do you think the present moment makes that less of an issue though because there are such clear dividing lines now? Do you think more people are prone to say, hey, you know what, actually, I'm, in, I'm inclined to go with what I previously would have thought was an extreme position? Maybe, although I feel like I can never underestimate uh, the ability of the left to sort of fracture over, <laughs> over ideological disagreements. Um, but I think, yeah, I think now is the time to kind of be a little bit more brave and a little bit more decisive as a movement about what are we here for? 
what do we what does it look like to us what victory what does that look like what does the society that we want to build the world that we want to build what does that look like and actually make claims about that and and uh put concrete ideas down um we've spent a long time focusing on single issue campaigns i say that as someone who was part of you can cut for a very long time um and while they've had victories and while they've kind of definitely turned the tide in you know in in certain respects i think that we've lost an overarching vision and and we do have the labor party now we have a left wing leader in the labor party so you know Connor Pope at labor list he's actually like from a completely different end of the labor party to us but he said recently he's actually just become uh, deputy editor of progress I well think. there you go and he but he said recently something that i thought was completely accurate he said either jeremy corbyn's time is now or he doesn't have one and i think that's completely true and i would say you know either the left's time is now or it doesn't have one and and so i think it's time for us to have these difficult conversations about where we're going and who we are and what we're doing so the key thing for you is a big conversation about who we are and also substantive policies about the world we want to kind of see yeah that's for propositional me. politics yeah yeah I, I agree with all of that um i think from what we've discussed today it's clear that if there is a breakthrough by by an opposition to the Tories, be that from the right or from the left, it's going to happen in about two years' time. At the moment, sort of, the the rise of UKIP has been on on hold because Theresa May has quite successfully pitched herself as a change from what came before, and so people are sort of happy to see how that goes for a while. People aren't ready for change again. If in two years' time we have a recession and by then it will be pinned on Theresa May and her government, that's when we'll start to see potential breakthroughs for an alternative. Um, and that could equally come from the far right or the far left um, or the centre left. And what we need to be thinking about is how do we set ourselves up now to take advantage in that moment? And that means we have to set in place the, the narratives that will be used to explain and blame the Tories for the mess that they are sitting upon in, in two years' time, which at the moment we're not really doing because we're kind of kind of agreeing with the Tories on everything. We haven't really set out our different path. So, for example, one possibility would be to right now, even though it might give you a slight electoral, a slight hit in the polls now, is to say the Tories are trying to have it both ways. They're trying to cut migration and also not go into a horrible recession. We're saying that's, that's not an option and go hard on freedom of movement. Then when there's a recession, that's why you say, that's why we were responsible. That's why we said keep freedom of movement and go for the single market. You've set up a narrative two years earlier, which means that in 2018, you can pitch yourselves as it wouldn't have been like this under Labour. This is the Tories' fault. Um, another option would be to say now that the Tories' pitch to a sort of uh, investment-led economy is impossible because of their structural interests, which won't get you particularly good headlines now, and it won't boost you in the polls now because Theresa May is very strong. And has quite a lot of consent within the population. But if you've been saying from now that the Tories can't do anti-austerity because they're landlords, because they're bankers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then in two years' time, when that bears out, you're in a position to take advantage of it. I mean, if the Tories had a means of electing a leader which was like Labour or like the Republican Party, we would already see 
an economic nationalist populist as prime minister. That would already have happened, right? We would have already had a Trump-style figure. The reason why we don't is because the Tories have, you know, Labour has one member, one vote. Of course, the fail-safe is they need nominations for MPs. Republican and Democratic means of getting a presidential nominee is through primaries, which is really open, as we found out with Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Uh, but with the Tories, you basically have two people put forward and then the membership votes in it didn't even... You know, I mean, it was a non—it was a non-event basically this time round for the Tories. So I think there seems to be like a lot of—I think people strike me as really overly relaxed, and particularly with Labour. I mean, this first of all, we're lucky to not have Boris for a number of reasons. A, the country would have gone to freefall. B, he could have done very well in the short term electorally. Um, but also, this should be that Black Wednesday moment, right? Every talks about you know people on the right of the Labour Party sell Tony Blair one ninety seven big. Uh, he polled well. They were polling. They were polling well after Black Wednesday. They were polling superbly after nineteen ninety three Labour, consistently well, and that went all the way through to nineteen ninety seven. They would have won a, a big majority basically any time after after the ERM crisis. Owen Jones always says you could put a red rosette on a gherkin and it would have won in 1997. Yeah, and I think that I think that's true. I mean, not, that's not to sort of denigrate people's achievements. You know, you have to go out there and do it. But I mean, I think I think that's probably correct. And it feels to me that this should be the Tories Black Wednesday ERM Mark II, and it's not happening. And I could see a recession, and I can actually see them. I can see them winning, and I can see UKIP doing really well, and Labour not making any inroads. And my worry is. I mean, I would pin that squarely on the leadership, to be quite frank. And again, I'm not looking to blame anybody. I'd square it on the media first and foremost, right? Of course. But we haven't haven't really got much agency with that, right? With the leadership, it just feels like we're in... It almost feels like they're waiting their turn. And because the Tories are going to screw up, the presumption is that they'll they'll bump up in the polls, they'll do that bit better. I don't think that should necessarily be presumed, given, like you say, everything that's happened in 2016. Um, Well... Not that I want to boast, but I did actually predict that we would Brexit, and I also predicted that we, Trump would win. Wow! Um, and um, but but it was like it, it, I'm not like a kind of soothsayer. The reason why I managed to predict both things is because I felt that both the Leave campaign and Trump answered the question of why should I vote for you, and you know, given my politics, I found you know, the answers to both of those questions appalling, but there were answers. But, you know, if you were to ask someone, why should I vote Remain? I mean, who knows? And, you know, like, because I don't want to leave, don't want to vote leave, and like, or why should you vote Hillary Clinton? Like, I remember a while ago, um, a journalist sending around a message um, to a few other journalists saying, quick, send me some, like, uh, progressive Hillary Clinton policies and these were all political journalists that he asked and there was just dead silence and so I think the same thing applies to the Labour leadership at the moment I don't think yes they've got the right politics for the era and I think that uh, Jeremy Corbyn has and the people around him they have articulated and they understand the scale of the challenge and the scale of the change and and that makes them for me that's why like they are the horse worth backing despite everything but they're yet to answer the question why should I vote for you? I, I feel like the average voter in this country, if you were to say to them, why should someone vote for Jeremy Corbyn? They just wouldn't know. But they would know a lot of reasons not to vote for him. Like he's a terrorist sympathizer. He's incompetent. He's a weirdo. You know, these are all of the ways that he's depicted in the press. And they would probably be able to reel off all of those things. But the question, why should I vote for Jeremy Corbyn? I don't feel like they've answered that. And, and that's what they need to do. Like, it's quite simple, I think. People need to feel like 
that they've got a reason to get out of bed in the morning and, and back your movement or like vote for you and or do something for your cause and and I think if you can give them that and I think that's what's really interesting about Blair as well is that I despite what I just said about you know anyone would have won in 1987 I remember the 1997 election I yes I'm that old and um I remember it like he did do that like they seemed like a government in waiting you know they it was the kind of cosmopolitan middle class mid-range lifestyle for all you know like cool britannia he rode the coattails of britpop you know co-opted it um you know britain would be center stage in the world again we would be cool we would be forward thinking you know it was like this vision of a kind of ambitious prosperous exciting young diverse britain that was what the vision that tony blair offered in 1997 and i feel like that's why people voted for him and i remember it being exciting when he got in i remember like i was i was 12 and i remember thinking it was a really exciting moment and you know and i obviously i i think tony blair is probably the worst person in politics in in my opinion but he did that very well and um and and that's what corbyn needs to do not adopt any of the policies but he needs to or well some of them obviously were quite good but like um, but he needs to give people a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Like that's what good politics does for me. It gives people a reason to think this is worth giving up my time for. This is worth like taking an hour of my day on going voting or going to a meeting or something. And like that's that's what he needs to do. I Let's respond to that quickly. Yeah. So with the Obama in two thousand and eight, we know that turnout amongst African Americans was just phenomenal, and because of how polling works, as in poll booths, not polling, I shouldn't say polling, poll booths in the U.S., it takes on average twice as long for an African American to vote. The queues are twice as long as they are for white Americans, and they did not care. You know, the whole point is to disincentivize that, right? But they were like, okay, cool, I'll I'll stand here for four hours because I'm going to vote for the first black president, and. People were excited about that. And, okay, you can't recreate that, but that's exactly it, right? Amongst some of the most marginalised communities, which, by the way, Karl Rove says this in 2004, he says the game for the Republicans is not to win the middle ground, it's to get people who agree with us to vote. And I've always believed that with the left, and I think that's a good strategy for actually any political party. I think UKIP do that at the moment better than either of the two major parties, or were doing that, I should say. They think I think they could do it again in the future. And that's the goal. And you, go, you can't do that unless you energise these people in precisely that way. What do you think, Michael? Uh... Yeah, I was going to go slightly back to, I thought maybe you were being a bit harsh, actually, on the Labour Party, the current Labour leadership, in comparing them to, to the Labour leadership in 1992. Because in... I didn't, I didn't do that. Well, you were saying they should be really high in the polls, because this, this is the Tories' Black, Black Wednesday yeah, but they, That's the point they did, right? So after Black Wednesday, the, the Labour Party goes rockets in the polls, and this lot have, aren't... No, but that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I think okay. it's a very different situation. Because, right. I mean, how you would... How the, the Labour Party could have, in the short term, taken advantage of this political moment would be to present themselves as the party of comp- competence, the party that don't present the risk to the economy that the Tories do, the party of responsibility. I think if they'd have done that, we could... If, and Corbyn and McDonnell couldn't have done that because that wasn't their structural position that they'd set out for themselves in, in UK politics over the last... 40 years um, if they'd have done that I think you probably would have seen a spike in the polls for Labour and they probably would have would have gone ahead but then if over the next three years you sort of had Labour as the party of competence and the status quo the party of Remain essentially even if that's just within the single market and the Tories go for a more populist weird change thing you could see that you could I can imagine Labour's initial bump 
after they get the whole competence thing could really go down once they're seen as a status quo and once they're seen as a neoliberal party. Um, what Labour are going, or what Labour needs to go for now, is they need to go for we're the real change party. So Theresa May said, "I'm the change." Labour need to say, "We're the real change," and that's a longer game. They won't peak till 2018 with that story because it's only in 2018 that we'll see that Theresa May isn't the change she, she says she is. See, I disagree. I think that the day after Brexit, Corbyn, and I'm of course going to have the caveat that you have a parliamentary Labour party which is stupid enough to launch a coup precisely at that moment. So this is a counterfactual, but it's plausible. And again, okay, I'm, look, if we're going to blame people, my, my ordinal rank of blaming people is parliamentary Labour Party, media, and then the leadership, but like they're not even third, they're 33rd, and there's nothing in between, right? But again, we, we, don't, we don't have agency over idiots like Tristan Hunt and Chris Leslie. We don't, sadly. Um, or, you know, the Daily Mail and the Sun headlines. But they could have very early on been clear, said we want to stay in the EEA and we'll do this Mason thing, right, of we're going to defend freedom of movement, but we're going to have huge amounts of stimulus spending and increase the minimum wage, increase living standards for people who don't necessarily agree with freedom of movement. And I think if they'd done that early and done it hard and been consistent, and they can still do it, they should be doing that. Of course, the problem is, like I said, the, the coup, which was just... The stupidest thing that the Labour Party, Parliamentary Labour Party, could have done at the stupidest, most inopportune moment. Anyway, less about the better. It's history. We've got just over five minutes left, so I suppose concluding remarks, and if we could be propositional, I guess, what big things can we do, can listeners do, between now and the budget, which is six months away, what can they do to change people's minds? What's the most important form of political action they can be involved with? Two minutes each. Start with you, Ellie. Um, I actually think that, you know, given everything that we've said about uh, the left needing a space in political discourse and now having one, I think that people should join the Labour Party and join Momentum and not, and not just pay their uh, fees, but to actually get involved at a local level, but also to get involved at a policy level. And I think as well, you know, we've, we've been... Um, critical friends to the Labour Party today. And I think that it's really important that people, you know, in their communities are also critical friends to the Labour Party that use their local structures to kind of feed back to the leadership about what is and isn't working. Um, I'd really like to see uh, local Labour parties actually try to build communities, you know, where they live. So perhaps um, offer people help with their tax returns or just like have a kind of fun day with a bouncy castle and on that kind of thing, you know, in order to sort of not just to bring these communities together, but so people in the Labour Party can actually have connections with people who aren't political and understand what they're saying and think about how that would shape where the Labour Party goes. Um, you know, I, Labour, like, I think Pablo Iglesias once said, politics is not what you and I would like it to be. It is what it is, and it is terrible. I think that's pretty accurate. Like, about electoral politics, at least, that's very accurate. But that doesn't change the fact that it has power, and it doesn't change the fact that Electoral politics in this country often set the tone for everything else. And that's unfortunate because it is awful, and Iglesias was right about that, but it does mean that we should get involved in it, and I think we should get involved in it and we should start making those propositions that I suggested earlier, talking about what what is this moment, what do we stand for, what do we want to do with it? That's, I think, where we need to go now. Yeah, I've... Uh got two things so i think one we're going to enter like quite a critical and potentially dangerous moment in british politics if we if we find ourselves in a recession in 2018 that's going to be and theresa may starts losing her her respect as a change candidate we're going to see the potential resurgence of the far right 
and the politics of division and increasing racism, et cetera, et cetera. And the way to make our, our country resistant to those or to give us some security from those forces is to build networks in our communities to make it less easy for people to blame their neighbor. That's going to involve community organizing. I think if it's done through local Labour parties, that's ideal. I think if you go to your first Labour Party meeting and they're not that up for it, don't be disheartened. Uh, so I think building community organising and building links across the UK. Uh, second, some vision. I think at the moment, the Labour leadership is struggling with landing on a vision. Um, and I think that gives us the responsibility to sort of experiment in a way and sort of provide their vericating between prevaricating, switching. Yeah, between, <laughs> between sort of different fudgy visions and we need to be experimenting with going with a hard vision this is what we think um, Britain should look like see how it goes down if it goes down well they can have it I won't even charge them I think with a lot of for me a, a lot of people are a lot of people on the left both in and outside of Labour are very critical of the Corbyn leadership particularly around freedom of movement and and some people who, who complain to me are quite influential people you know they're journalists they're right, and I'm just thinking Go out there and do something about it and exert some pressure on them. And I think the big thing for me is, you know, we will have a a strong political culture on the left when we have a left to the Labour leadership, which is critical, intelligible and has a mass audience. And when that happens, you know what, we're on the money, really. Uh, we're nowhere near it at the moment. So what I'd say is I'd build on, on what both of you have said and I'd say, Michael in particular, look, 2018, if we do go into recession with these trends, with a hard Brexit either that year or the following year, it's bad. The political context is much worse than the United States. And that could give rise to a politics which is worse than Trump. Um, and the left needs to literally anticipate that. No, not anticipate it isn't, oh yeah, it's going to come, predict it. It needs to literally anticipate it and act accordingly. I'd say that will require community organising. People may say, oh, Labour, oh my God, Labour. There's a, there's a ward in my CLP, my constituency, one of the wards, every one in 12 households is a party member. That's phenomenal, right? And that's not, that's not unique. There's quite a few constituencies that have that. So in terms of organising anti-fascist organ resistance and the kinds of social reproduction organising that we've talked about on the show many, many times, you don't do it necessarily within the party, but it can certainly be imbricated with it, you know, it can certainly connect with it. And I think that's a huge task for us ahead. We really have big problems on the horizon. We have to be adequately prepared for them, not just intellectually, but practically. On that note, thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. My name's Aaron Mercedes, this is Navarra Media. This show will be, will be on the website, navarramedia.com, very soon. We'll see you same time, same place next week. Bye. Navarra FM is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find out more about our work, head to navarramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and, as well as subscribing to the show, leave a review. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media, media for a different politics.